Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Well, another week, another Royal Scandal podcast. Yeah, back to the Royals. A different kind of Royal angle, though, for us. Yes, very interesting man that we're going to be talking about today, I think. Yes, Lord Snowden, um, husband of Princess Margaret for a while. Yep, uh, we've got Andrew Corsi, who is the the biographer of Snowden, and he's always very good value. Yeah, a very classy writer and a very classy biography. Um, one of those that uh, is as much social history as biography, you know, the, the world that these people moved in. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And, uh, yeah, it's great. If you want upper-class gossip, we are the place for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think Anne is so brilliant because her, her research is impeccable, but she writes you know, uh, very engagingly. And so, you know, I hope this will lead people to some of her other books. Yes, well, we've been asked about Snowden a lot, and uh, he is an interesting man, and often sort of passed by, and it's a new way of looking at Princess Margaret, too. It certainly is. Um, we've had a lot of interesting feedback. Do you want to hear some of it? Yes, yes. Actually, it's been quite a good week. You know, we've uh, a big milestone. We've passed 300,000 downloads this week. Gosh. 320, I think, um, across all the platforms, which, you know, in a year and two months is pretty amazing. Thank you for everybody who has helped yes, contribute to that. Um, and, yeah, a lot of people have been in touch on the various platforms. <laughs> Maybe my, this one starts well. Deborah Copeland, wow, this is nice. From older men with British accents. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, like that. that's one of our, our, um, our, our um, image. Yes, maybe she meant you, Andrew. Maybe she meant you. Yes, well, I'd bring a bit of class to it, I think. Yes, well, the, the mailing show uh, got people talking. Uh, not everybody, I mean, a lot of people loved it, but uh, Peter Plum took us to task. He's listened to all the episodes. Thank you for that, Peter. But he thought this was not our best work. Uh, we rushed it a bit, and we didn't get to important parts of the story, such as the struggle with the Vatican to give Rudolf a proper Catholic burial. 
Sorry about that. She could always come back. I'd be interested to see what other people feel. Uh, I think it's a big story, and we could have gone in lots of different directions. And um, I, I thought we covered a lot of ground. Well, we did. I mean, I think we are, we, you know, we could structure these things more if we wanted to be like proper journalists. But I think it's quite nice that we ramble a bit. It's it's loose. People can take the conversation in the direction they want to take it. And a lot of people like that. Leslie Fisher-Rice has been in touch. You're the best podcast ever. The perfect balance to your broadcasts. The best of any British or American podcasts I listen to. Isn't that nice? Gosh, I think we should pin that as, as, as a tweet somewhere. Yeah, people should. And somebody else likes our approach. The gentle, easy mix and the fact-based stuff makes for great listening, says Jane Buckland. So we are pleasing some other people some of the time. Oh, good. And we do keep sending in those suggestions. We've, we've now got quite a lot number of, of programs that we're actually done interviews for, for people that you were keen to hear more about. Yeah, yeah, we're slightly spoiled for choice, actually. If there's lots of good things in the bank, talking, we've got something in the blood bank, infected blood scandal, which is a great interview. That's going to come up in the next couple of weeks. Um, wonderful conversation about white mischief, uh, which we recorded recently with James Fox, and, the writer of the book of that name. And the Canadian perception of sewers. So yes. it's a pretty varied program we've got. All human life is here. Yeah. Oh. And all human life, I think, is with the Lord Snowden story, too. Yes, well, it's got a bit of everything, hasn't it? Illegitimacy, bisexuality, uh, all my favourite subjects. Posh people taking drugs, posh <laughs> yes. people sleeping with other posh people, posh <laughs> people sleeping with posh people they shouldn't be sleeping with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, well. It's sort of, it's slightly def- it slightly defines your oeuvre, doesn't it, really? It does, yes. Well, we try to please. We like to, to give people what they want. High class smut. Okay. Let's go to Anne. I bet she's got some great smut for us and do, do no doubt delivered in a very high class way. Yep. Well, that's, that's our, our salute. Okay. Here we go. Bye. Well, we're delighted to have Anne de Corsi this week, who's a, a very well known historian, really, of the social history of the 20th century. And one of her best known books is her biography of Lord Snowden. And I think really the first thing is to, to ask why you chose to write a book about him. I thought he was an immensely interesting character. Um, nobody had properly written about him before. There'd been one or two biographies, but they were basically just press cuttings put together, you know. And I knew he'd led a very interesting life. And I thought if I could get him to talk and his friends to talk, uh, one would learn an awful lot. He'd really, uh, certainly in the 60s, he'd been very much at the cutting edge of everything, and so, and he was also a brilliant photographer. He'd reached the top of the tree uh, long before he'd met Princess Margaret, so that it wasn't he wasn't helped by his royal connections at all. He got there by himself, which I thought was very good. And how did you persuade him to to talk to you? Because it turned out to be a very revealing book. It took me a long time. It took me a year, and I remember that um, uh, we had lunch. We somehow met over something. So we had lunch and I put the idea to him because I said, you've led a very, how shall I put it, colourful life. And if I don't write about you, later on somebody who is probably a very down market publisher, focusing only on that, will write about you. Whereas I will give full weight to all the work you've done for charity, which he had. And in fact, I devoted two chapters to it. Um, And he looked out of the window. My words trickled into sand. 
And I thought, I said, oh, dear, we'll, perhaps we'd better talk about something else. And uh, then we went out to lunch again, and I didn't even bring the subject up. But what I did notice, because I think you always have to use a bit of psychology when people are difficult, is that you know how in most restaurants men always put the woman in the bulkhead seat so that she can see and be seen? Um, well, invariably, Tony took it. He <laughs> He liked to see and be seen. So I thought anybody who likes to see and be seen is also not averse to a bit of publicity. So I compiled a very careful letter. And then the next time we had lunch, I said to him, Tony, it's look out of the window time again. (laughs) And a faint smile crossed his lips. And I said, I'm going to go back to the office and I'm going to write you a letter of what I feel. And can you let me know, please, one way or the other? And I got a very nice postcard saying, would you like to come round and look at all my files? And I took that as a yes. And so I went right. round uh, once a week for two years. And wasn't the undertaking that you wouldn't publish in his lifetime, but in the end, he didn't really care? Well, I gave him a letter because I thought I'm bound to find out an awful lot. I gave him a letter that was um, looked at by a lawyer to prove that it was absolutely substantial, saying that I would not publish in his lifetime without his consent so that he would feel perfectly safe. And as time went on, he kept saying, when are you going to publish? And eventually, when I came to write the book, there really was an awful lot of pretty revelatory stuff. And I didn't know what to do. And I thought, I can't do a whitewash. That's not my style. I'd better write the book as though he's no longer with us. And if he doesn't want it published, I will put it on the back burner. And if he just wants a minor tweak or two, then I will do that. And rather nervously, my editor and I said to him, look, uh, we've got the manuscript, we've got the book ready. And he said, neither Lucy nor I want to read it. Mm. Go ahead. And so we went ahead. Gosh. He, and did so he, he had no idea what you'd written? No. After all that rigmarole. I I gave him every opportunity because I absolutely believe in playing fair and square with people. I had no idea how much would come out. But he had very sweetly given me a letter to send to his friends saying that I was doing this book with his, it wasn't authorised, but please would they help me in any way. And so I met all sorts of people from... Uh, his mistress, Melanie Cable Alexander, who he'd had this affair with and a child by. She came up to the restaurant table while we were having lunch one day. And I said to her in front of Tony, um, Melanie, I would love to talk to you. And she looked at Tony and said, well, I'll only do it if Tony agrees. And so I said, Tony, what do you think? I'd love to talk to her. And he said, oh, all right, go on. And so she came down with her little boy to stay in my cottage for the weekend. She was awfully sweet. I liked her very much. And we got on very well. And she poured it all out. She'd been given permission to. But, you know, that contained everything. And it was the same with various other people. Because what else was revelatory about it in this colourful life that he led? What else was what? What else was revealing? Well, there was that. And then I remember um, there were always women circulating around Tony. I mean, all his life. 
he'd had numerous very pretty girlfriends, and this went on and on and on. And I remember once he told me that I ought to go and talk to Marjorie Wallace, you know, who ran the mental health charity, because he said she and he used to do features together. She was the writer. He was the photographer for the Sunday Times colour magazine when it first came out. And I looked up those features, and they were wonderful. Um, he did a marvellous one on an old people's home. I mean, they were full of dignity and feeling, uh, absolutely marvellous. And I talked to Marjorie a lot, and, and, you know, she told me about all these jaunts they had and how they pretended to be bringing the laundry in and got in secretly one day and were able to take some of these marvellous pictures. And it was very good indeed. And after a bit, I said, I think I'm going to need a photograph of you, Marjorie, in the book, because you figure quite strongly. Well, most people, certainly most women, are a bit fussy about which photograph they give. So there was a little bit of vibe here yeah, about which photograph it was. And in the course of one telephone conversation, she said to me, um, you do know I'm his mistress, don't you? And it was one of the many occasions in my life, Andrew and Phil, that I haven't known how to respond quite. <laughs> and so this was news to you? Yes. Well, it was news to everybody. Oh, interesting. And have you have you seen the portrayal in the in the crown of him? No, you haven't. Well, I I looked at the first issue uh, thing of the crown, and I got very turned off when I saw that Princess Margaret towered over everybody else. When you think how petite she was, okay. it just didn't really. I didn't find. I didn't really want to look at it. Well, the, the man you're describing does sound quite like the one they portrayed, I have to be honest. Certainly in his um, charisma and sexual... Yeah, well, you, see, you see, it does, because uh, uh, Robert Lacey rang me up, and I didn't realise he was first that he was picking my brains. He went on and on and on about Tony, and of course I told him things. So I think he got quite a lot of that from me. That's where it came from. Oh, interesting. And, I mean, Snowden was open, but, I mean, how did some of the other people around him feel that were being outed as mistresses? And uh... Well, Andrew, I don't think they were all very being outed. Women sort of revolved around him. I mean, I met him in his 70s, and nobody could have called him an extinct volcano then. There was uh, Lu Lucy, there was a uh, lovely girl I knew, um, someone else. I mean, they... They just orbited. But did they want their, their their private lives? You know, he was happy to talk, but, I mean, did were they no, happy? No, 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 they talked, not him. He was very cagey. He was very gentlemanly like that. Um, all he would say was, oh, she was lovely, <laughs> which is hard. How many of these affairs, if any, were happening whilst he was married to Princess Margaret? Any of these affairs? Oh, yes, well, they were. I mean, Lucy, of course, was. Uh, I think the affairs started, but while he was married to Princess Margaret, they were, um, most of them were just sort of fleeting, I suppose you'd call them one-night stands, but there were a lot of those uh, constantly. And uh, there was one big one, I think, with uh, a very beautiful model that went on for quite a long time. And there was uh, this a funny occasion. She was down at the cottage with with Tony one day and 
Princess Margaret's chauffeur, who was an awfully nice man who talked to me and who was very fond of the princess, uh, he'd taken her to see friends in Brighton or somewhere. And she said, oh, let's call in on my husband on the way back, the cottage. And the chauffeur knew that this girl was there. And he didn't know what to do. He thought, oh, this is going to be awful. And her Royal Highness, to whom he was devoted, is going to be shattered. And he said the only thing he could do coming up the drive, he switched his lights on and off, flash, 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 and hoped that Tony would realise that this was a signal. And when they got to the cottage, uh, Tony greeted Princess Margaret warmly, and then he said to the chauffeur, look, the Jaguar, or whatever the name of the car was, it needs more petrol. Will you take it to the garage and fill it up, please, the nearest villa village? Well, the chauffeur knew perfectly well that the car was full of petrol because he... It was his job to see that they were every morning. But nevertheless, he said, yes, my lord, jumped into the driver's seat and drove off to this garage. And he said, when he got there, he opened the boot and out jumped this pretty girl. <laughs> so Princess Margaret didn't know, didn't know about these affairs or she did know and she no, she, the other way. I don't think she knew about it. She may have known Tony knew her, but she certainly didn't know that the girl went down to the cottage. Because, well, I mean... There was also a child conceived literally as he was about to get married, wasn't there? Which yes. was revealed much later. Yes, yes. Um, whom I actually interviewed for the book. Uh, yes, this was his great friend um, and his wife. Uh, Fry. Jeremy Fry, I think it was. And, and uh, Jeremy Fry and his wife, Camilla. Camilla had been a girlfriend of Tony's before she married and Tony used to go down there they were a sort of golden couple and there were weekend parties there and as I said everything was very cutting edge and there was a lot of what I believe were called uppers consumed there and so I think one of those weekends one of those um when they all all literally got it together this child was conceived this was while he was courting Princess Margaret she was born when they were on honeymoon she was called Polly Fry very attractive, very like Tony, and she'd inherited Tony's wonderful taste. Her house was beautiful. And when did she discover she was his child? People kept saying things to her, she told me. Um, again, uh, I asked Tony if I could interview her, or asked her, and she said she'd got to find out from Tony, and he said yes. And so because he'd said yes, she talked to me, so down I went to see her. Um, I think, I think she... She looked quite like him. She had that slightly long upper lip that is very often a sign of being funny, and she was quite funny, and Tony was very funny. Um, and his colouring, uh, she's very interested in artistic things. So she was quite like him. And she was not like her siblings, you see. She looked different from them. They were all nice-looking, but she had a different look. And... I think a lot of people who'd been around at that time knew roughly what was going on. Uh, a great friend of mine, who was also a great friend of Tony's, certainly knew. Um, and so word gets out, rather in the way um, Lady Diana Cooper learnt that Harry Cust was her father, not the Duke of Rutland. People kept, it got borne in on her. And then she, she thought, I must decide this one way or another. She said to me, you know, when you get into your 40s, you really want to know what your roots are, which is very understandable. 
And so she wrote to Tony asking if he would take a DNA test. And that's how they discovered. Gosh, so he had no idea either. He might have had a little. But, I mean, I think that probably this wasn't an isolated occurrence. And so there might have been a number that he didn't inquire too closely in. And Jeremy could have been his best man, couldn't he? But wasn't. Yes, yes, yes that's right. I think there was some kind of, uh, was it homosexual scandals? Something like that, I think, and stopped him being. And that was the palace stepping in because because Jeremy, Jeremy was on yes. to be gay. Yes, they didn't want press sort of saying, look, look, and pointing the finger. And I mean, things were much, quite different in those days. And this was, after all, I think, wasn't it? Wasn't it before the Wolfenden Act? It was... Yes, 1960. Yes, it, they got married in 1960. I can't remember when the Wolfenden Act was. 1967. Yes, so I think, you know, you just didn't want people saying this is against the law. Or How did the palace react to the book? I mean, and how did Snowden's family, I mean, his children, for example, discovering all this? I don't know how his children reacted. Uh, Tony was furious with me. Um, and I think the Paris reacted quite well. I got a very nice letter from one of the ladies in waiting saying, we, and she wouldn't have said this if her boss hadn't approved, we are all very pleased with the portrayal of Princess Margaret because I felt very sympathetic to Princess Margaret, who'd had a very tough time. You know, Tony sort of, as he put it, he liked to he liked change, he liked to move on. And I mean, her, the princess's template of marriage was really how that of her sister and her parents, who had spent time together, stuck together, been together, and been a loving couple. That's what she had very much hoped for. And and, and was it really his behaviour and the affairs that spoiled their marriage in the end? Or was there a deeper problem, do you think? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think there were two things. I certainly think the affairs had a lot to do with it because they were very shattering for the princess. And also, uh, she was very good about him getting a job and she helped him get the Sunday Times job, you see. She was very good like that. And it it, it was... She didn't see that much of him. He'd be out at work all day and then he would rush down to his workroom in the base. base basement of Kensington Palace, he had this studio workroom. He was brilliant at making and designing things. I mean, he could have made a 
about 737 out of a pair of bent safety pins. He <laughs> could just do anything. And he would go down there uh, night after night, um, and she'd hardly see him. And then if he went abroad on a trip, which he did quite often for the Sunday Times, if he rang up, she wouldn't... He, if she rang up, he wouldn't take the calls. I mean, she felt very neglected. And you see, as I've just said, her, her idea of marriage was a couple who were together and everything. And suddenly finding that the husband she'd fallen in love with and married, she didn't hear from him for three weeks, was ghastly. I mean, she was very, he was very rude to her. I mean, abusive, really. I mean, the book paints a very sympathetic portrait of her and what she put up with. Yes, yes. Uh, that's right. Well, she had to put up with it. He was, he was very rude to her. He was awful to her. And I mean, she, you'd leave rude, rude notes for her to find and things, didn't he? That's right, yes, yes. You know, you look like a Jewish manicurist in her glove drawer. Um, at first, it was, all, it was all roses till about Sarah's birth. And they were devoted to each other. They adored each other. He was extraordinarily helpful to her. Uh, he helped her with her speeches. He was very supportive. And she had no reason, really, to think that this wasn't going on. And suddenly she found herself bereft. I mean, he sometimes left her at parties, and she didn't know how to get home. She'd never run up for a taxi in her life. And she felt, you know, just abandoned. And was this behaviour motivated by selfishness, by guilt, uh, by a broken childhood? I think this behaviour was motivated he was very quicksilver. He liked moving on. I once said to him, what made you behave like that? And he said, he said thoughtfully, I like change. And I think he thought he'd been devoted to her for four years. That was enough. Uh, we can live in an atmosphere of tolerance, but I must be given my freedom. I think it was a bit that. His childhood had been very upsy-downsy because his father had married a number of times. There was always seemed to be a different house and a different stepmother. And his mother had, after they'd divorced, his mother, mother had married the Earl of Ross and had two little boys, and they were her priority. Uh, Tony and his sister Susan, to whom he was adored and uh, to whom he, had, he was devoted and whom he adored and who uh, he was close to all his life, they would go to stay um, uh, at... Um, at Castle Ross at the house, and she would introduce her sons to people, and then she would say, "Oh, and this is my other son." And Tony was very much Tony and Susan were very much second-class citizens. <clears throat> but do you, I mean, did you have? I mean, how did you feel at the end of the book? Uh, how did you view him? How had your views changed? And and did you feel? I mean, clearly a very complex and paradoxical character. He was very complex. He was very paradoxical. You're quite right. Uh, he could have great charm. I felt an awful lot of his problems stemmed from a childhood with a mother who didn't really take much notice. He was always trying to gain her attention, but not in obvious ways when he was, and it was only when he married Princess Margaret uh, that he got a sort of well done, well done from her. Um, then she really took paid attention to him, but it was too late. I mean, if he'd had the love and attention that I think that other people, so many of people's problems, I think, do derive from their childhoods. And he'd been rather tossed from pillar to post. And he was very funny and he made full use of that. And he knew he could make people laugh. He knew he could attract them. And you use, as you're growing up, you tend to use what weapons you've got. 
And did Margaret have affairs? I mean, there's suggestions, for example, she had an affair with Peter Sellers. Um, I don't think for a minute she had an affair with Peter Sellers. Tony was absolutely adamant that she never did. Uh, but he had fantasies about her the whole time and really got alongside Tony in order to try and get alongside her. Uh, no, she had one with Robin Douglas Hume, but I think hers were mostly what I can only describe as revenge affairs. You know, so you're not taking any notice of me. Well, there are other men who find me attractive, that sort of thing. Um, and, I mean, do you think that the, the Townsend affair had, had any sort of consequences for her, or had she got over that? I feel very strongly that she'd got over it, because T- Townsend started, it could almost at the beginning have been called a teenage crush. She was only about 15. And, you know, practically everybody falls in love the first time and doesn't marry her first love. They probably always harbour tender feelings for them, but they don't. Well, the Queen, the Queen was a good example. Well, the Queen uh, did, but most people, you know, I'm un, you know, I certainly didn't marry the first person I fell in love with, and quite possibly Andrew, you didn't, but who knows? <laughs> no, so that's my secret. <laughs> exactly. It's you know, a, I mean, it is an incredible world you picture you paint uh, of these misbehaving aristocrats and, and generally posh and rich people, but uh, somewhere between charming rogue. And manipulative bastard. Where would you put? Yes. Where would you put him? <laughs> well, one day he was one. One day he was another. Um, he was very manipulative. There was a wonderful story of him when he was sent to New York by Vogue, who you know they're n- notoriously skinflint because they haven't got that much money. The editors get a lot of money, but the and he was put in a sort of cold water flat. Someone he didn't even have a telephone. And he protested, and nobody took any notice. And one day, the editor needed to ring him up. Um, and he said, well, I can give you the number to ring me on. And he put her through to Father Christmas's grotto. And there was a sort of, ho, 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 little girl. What can I do to you? <laughs> I mean, he was very good like that. And he did get a telephone then. So did, you find the... him, did, did you find him charming at all? I mean, were you, could, you, could you see why so many women fell for him? I could see why so many did, but I'm not tremendously good on short people. Um, but it was just, I liked him. We got on. I, I used to make him fish cakes sometimes. He loved nursery food, and he was always very thrilled. I got on. I was fond of him. Of course I was. And so I was upset when he was he was upset. Yes, he was nice to me, always. And why did the royal family like him so much? Because, I mean, given the way he treated Margaret, you would have thought they wouldn't be very specific. Oh, that's easy to answer he had great charm and he had delightful manners when he wanted to please nobody could please better um he got on incredibly well with the queen mother both the queen mother and queen knew that princess margaret could be difficult and was difficult sometimes and so when it all went wrong and there was tony sweet delightful charming manners everybody they all said Oh, poor Tony. Those sympathies were all with him. We know she's difficult. Of course, it must have been awful. So that was really why. I mean, he genuinely, he adored the Queen Mother. He told me he thought of her every single day of his life after she died. Um, He admired and respected and loved the Queen, thought she was wonderful. So all that was totally genuine and would stay genuine. 
And how did you feel about Princess Margaret after you read the book? I mean, and what did you discover quite a lot that was new about her? Well, my what I the conclusion I came to was that one of Princess Margaret's chief troubles was that she was basically very bored. Um, it was sort of before the days that princesses got very involved in charities and this, that, and the other. Uh, she was involved with the ballet, which she loved, and her behaviour with them was uh, excellent. She knew all the dancers' names. She took a real interest. But she didn't really have anything to do. She got up. Her breakfast was brought to her. Possibly she wrote a letter or two. Uh, what did she do then? She perhaps mm, washed her collection of shells. But she had nothing much to do. That's why she looked forward to the evenings so much, when she could have the friends who did work would come round, and that's why she was such a night bird. I mean, she didn't have enough to do. She was very intelligent. I think she always rather resented the fact that the Queen was educated in constitutional history, and she wasn't. Um, of course, she was four years younger. I think that was a lot her problem, not having enough to do. And a bit spoilt. I mean, you know, the stories of her racing through her food so that people had to finish their food before couldn't, you know, if they hadn't finished, the plates were taken away. I think she was a bit spoilt, but I think that was, again, partly boredom. And what should I do today? I know. I'll make them eat quickly. Um, I'm sure it was a lot that. Because she used to very much like the company of clever people. I mean, she'd go and stay with Professor Plum. And her ladies-in-waiting told me that after the divorce, if she went with them to Rome to a museum she was one who took notes who would say no we've seen that picture last time we were here we'll go and look at this and she was very good showing her children pictures she would take them to look at one particular picture and really talk to them about it so they really got to know that particular picture rather than just going through looking at a lot so she, she had really needed her brain using and didn't get it and, i mean did she get it with her relationship with with uh, llewellyn because, I mean, there's a much younger man, not an obvious intellectual. So what was it there? The funny thing was he looked frightfully like Tony, and he was very like Tony in a lot of ways, but he was awfully kind to her. And I think it, after the last part of her marriage was incredibly bruising, you know, not speaking to other each other, saying to the controller, perhaps Lord Napier, uh, will you pass the salt? Will you ask the princess to pass the salt at the dining table? It must have been simply awful. And I think she just thought how wonderful to have somebody kind, nice and attractive. It was so that. For people who don't know, who are maybe listening or watching, Roddy Llewellyn was, well, what was it? He was her boyfriend, lover in the yes. latter part yes. of her life. Yes. And he, yes. He came from a rather sort of rougher background, perhaps, to most royal boyfriends. No, he wasn't. He came from quite a posh background. Did he? Yes. Oh, yes. His father um, was a baronet. Ah. I mean, it's all relative, but... Um, yes. But but yes. also, I mean, he was much younger than her, too. Yes, and you see, in those days, that was a scandal. Uh, that's what everybody always said. Oh, he's so much younger than her. Whereas I don't think people would mind that now. You know, you have uh, Joan Collins marrying a man 35 years younger, and everybody says, well done. And she's very happy. And it's not a scandal. Uh, but then it was considered a scandal. And were there particular challenges in doing the book? I mean, you, because he gave you, you taped him, he gave you access to all his records, he allowed you to speak to everyone. 
So was it was it easy to do or, or were there the problems? It was fairly easy to do. Um, the extraordinary thing was, though, that I had quite difficulty persuading Weidenfels to take it. Um, Gosh. And I had Chateau sort of champing in the wings saying, why don't you give it to us? Why don't you? We would like it. And eventually but I got, they said, yes, Widenfell said, yes, we will. Um, and they took it because I'd been with them for some time and they do do biographies very well. You know, they're very good. They have very good copy editors, very good. Everything is very good about it. So, and was it one of your most successful books, do you think, in terms of attention and sales? In terms of attention and the money it made me, certainly, because it got hugely serialised in the Daily Mail, and then it got serialised a second time when Tony died, and then there were extracts sold to places all over the world, Vanity Fair and Russian Vogue and goodness knows what. So from that point of view, yes, it was very I, I've heard some of the tapes an extract from one of the tapes that you recorded. And it does sound like a lot of fun. I mean, often he's saying, come on, Anne, let's have another drink. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm. You make a wonderful radio awesome. programme. Mm. Uh, and is there anything you would add now or change? Have new things come to light since his death, for example? Not that I know of, because I haven't, you know, um, not that I know of at all. William Tallon, the Queen Mother's, you know, backstairs Billy, the Queen Mother's page was very good chatting to me. Uh, he was very funny and good. And he used to have lunch with Tony uh, every Sunday. I mean, one of the sad stories is, is the mistress Anne Hills who committed suicide. Yeah. Yes, Can you yes. tell us a little bit about that story? And Because and, yes. she doesn't look like an obvious sort of mistress for him. No, but you see, she, Anne Hills was... Um, I think she wrote a lot for The Guardian. She, I don't think she was a very happy person. Uh, I did talk to her father, was very good and talked to me for a bit. Um, and I've forgotten, she met Tony at some charity do, I think. And Anne Hills had this way of if she fancied someone, uh, she would make overtures. And she turned up on Tony's doorstep one day and said, I'd like to have an affair with you. Um, and Gosh. Phil, she, you must try that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, she was pretty and all that. And as Tony said, you know, you don't turn down that sort of chance in a hurry. And so they did have an affair. And this went on for ages. He he would always keep in touch with these women. He he didn't like to lose any of them. And then eventually, life went wrong for her. She got older. She got less. Her work was going very badly. Um, she wasn't seeing Tony. I mean, there were about six really nasty factors in her life, of which not seeing Tony was one. I mean, he was not the cause of her suicide. I'm absolutely certain of that. But he was a factor among half a dozen. What's a sad story. His was the last voice on her answer phone. That's what focused it on him. Gosh. And if you were to sum him up, um, uh, his legacy, I mean, would it be as a campaigner for the disabled? Would it be as a, an inventor, as a photographer? I think, Andrew, I think it would be all three because he was a 
terrific campaign for disabled people. I went to several of his meetings and they were all incredibly grateful. And he did things like, I think, at the um, investiture, Prince Charles. I mean, he noticed there wasn't a special access for disabled people. He would make a tremendous fuss about that kind of thing and get it done. He was really good like that. He did a lot of work for disabled people. Because we forget that, of course, he was the person who arranged the the present king's investiture in 69. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And those lovely red coronation chairs, um, of which were two in his house. Uh, They sold them up, all the ones that were there. So he did a lot of work. He was brilliant at making things. When I went to his house the first time, I said, it looks as though you've got a wonderful... Uh, a bit of Regency wrought wrought iron and glass above your porch. And he laughed and said, uh, well, actually, no, that's plastic piping that I heated and bent into shape and painted black and installed the glass in. It was not Regency. And another time I admired the antique mask with a fountain in the garden, a mask. Uh, It looked as though it was sort of stone mask. And, of course, it was actually a mask he'd bought down the King's Road, bought some concrete powder, glued it on, and fixed up the fountain. I mean, but it looked like something that you would have spent thousands on uh, from Zion Court. So he, he, could, he could make anything, and did. And the doors of Kensington Palace, when he and Princess Margaret moved in, they didn't have much money. Um, he, they were perfectly plain deal doors, and he cut some mahogany panels and glued them on, and so that it looked like a wonderful heavy door when you arrived. And were there things that you you felt that weren't covered, that people weren't prepared to talk about, um, either elements of his life that remained a mystery? Most people, most people talk quite freely, I must say. I cannot think of anything. I mean, there may well have been questions that I should have asked but didn't ask that are still a mystery. I can't say about that, but I used to ask quite a lot of questions, and they they were all very good talking to me. Um, Well, that's your experience as a journalist. I mean, years of just doing articles. Yes, yes. And, uh, I mean, you know, you recently talked about the importance also of how journalists have to write to deadlines, have to write very concisely, have to, to, to... to give colour. I think you talked about how yes. people don't use colour enough in biographies. No. Well, I think that's important. Um, sure. There's no shortage of colour in your book <laughs> on him. That's uh-huh. sure. It's uh, wildly entertaining. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so uh, much was, for talking. How was this conversation? Uh, so interesting and what completely unique. Well, you know, nobody else knows this stuff really and probably yeah. never will again. Because I think no, that I world is done now, isn't it? That world. Is I know, done. I know. Yes, yes, I know. It was extraordinary having a peep into that world. Because we talked to Tom Sykes the other day, and he was talking about how his father would commandeer buses and use them, kidnap people, basically take the bus and go to use it to drive around. <laughs> drive London. to his club. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Happy days. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed listening to you. Love, yes, and I'm so sorry. I. Uh, Overlooked the first. No, not at all. It's not at all. You are, t- you are more technically adept than both of us put together. <laughs> See you soon. See you okay. soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. 
You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.